We are born free. And we will die free. The time in between, though, that's complicated. In that time, governments, institutions, and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life. These are real stories of real people overcoming the odds, persevering in justice, and unlocking their potential. Welcome to Finding Freedom. Here's your host, John Oderman. Hey, hey, welcome back to another episode of Finding Freedom right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. And got a an awesome guest for you guys today. Really looking forward to the topic. Um, we're going to be talking about guns, going to be talking specifically about some legislation. Uh, one that I know Brian touched on a couple of weeks ago on his show, Mean Age Daydream, um, the ghost gun case uh, that the Supreme Court recently gave a ruling on. But uh, we're going to dig into that case and see where it's going, as well as another one. Um, I'll bring on my guest in one second. Just want to remind you all, if you like this content, if you want more of it, if you want to get our bonus content, you can join the Lions of Liberty Pride by going to patreon.com slash Liberty or lionsofliberty.locals.com to get all of that great content. And with that, I will bring in my guest today. My guest today is Cody Wisniewski. He is a senior attorney for constitutional litigation with the Firearms Policy Coalition. Cody's work has appeared in the Washington Times, the Washington Examiner, National Review, Daily Wire, and more. Primary focus on the Second Amendment, but uh, he'll really focus on anything that reminds government of its enumerated powers and constitutional limitations. Cody, welcome to Finding Freedom. Thank you for having me, sir. Happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. And before we get into talking about guns and legislation and and all of that very important stuff, let's let's learn a little bit about you and uh, and who you are. So, what attracted you, first of all, to the legal field um, to to going down this path? Where did that come from? Yeah. Well, so first, I actually uh, I've received a promotion, so I'm actually uh, general counsel and vice president of legal at FPC Action Foundation. Oh, congratulations. Uh, where I work, thank you so much, where I work with both uh, FPC Action Foundation and Firearms Policy Coalition to kind of uh, you know, help achieve the, the organization's uh, shared mission of a, uh, a world of maximal human liberty. So with, a, with a, t- a mission like that, who could not want to get involved? But for me, it ended up uh, you know, being a point where I had seen a lot going on when I was looking at kind of... Uh, politics and and history really so my background was in classics and philosophy so I did a lot in ancient history and uh, and on the philosophy side and what I really saw was an opportunity to kind of be involved and affect change and I didn't really know what that would look like uh, you know I thought that there might be opportunities to potentially get involved in the legal space and so after uh, after undergrad you know I had one of those decisions to make that anybody with an arts degree has to make and that is uh, go and teach and get a master's or to go into uh, be a lawyer so I decided to, to pursue law something that I had thought about doing when I was a kid and then early in my uh, my pursuit I kind of realized how how bad the system was really and how offensive it was that we were training this new generation of, of lawyers and in constitutional law, particularly 
lawyers weren't actually learning anything about the Constitution. What they were learning was, and what I learned, was what did this group of Supreme Court justices have to say about what this group of Supreme Court justices had to say about what this group of Supreme Court justices had to say about the Constitution eventually. And so everything was filtered through these these Supreme Court opinions to the point where the Constitution and constitutional law for me was summer reading. It wasn't it wasn't even part of the class. It was read it before you get here, get that pesky little thing out of the way, and then we'll dive into what really matters, the Supreme Court. And so it, it was really a way to put things into perspective. Uh, and it really changed how I looked at legal practice and how I looked at how I could potentially, you know, leverage my uh, my degree. And then how did you find your way into uh, a focus on, on firearms and find your way ultimately to the firearms policy coalition? Yeah. So I see, I see firearms and gun rights as kind of the, the microcosm of the macrocosm. Uh, it is an area that had been disfavored for a period of time. It's an area that a lot of people weren't talking about whether it be in courtrooms, in the liberty movement writ large, guns were kind of just set off to the side. And I don't think that's completely changed today. But what I really saw was that it was this, this area that people didn't want to engage in. And yet it was setting such dangerous precedent for what could happen in the future. I mean, if you can unconstitutionally infringe on gun rights because it's not a favored right or because it's a disfavored right amongst the, you know, a group of, of the populace, then what are you going to be able to do to privacy and to speech mm-hmm. and to these things? And for me, uh, you know, I, I went to law school in Southern California. I'm originally from Southern California. And I remember watching what my dad had to go through in order to be a gun owner in California and how insane the regulations were and how insane the restrictions were. And, you know, my dad's a mechanic. He was trying to figure it all out. It's all incredibly confusing. And it was really hard for him to be able to exercise his rights in the state of California. And those two things really just resonated with me. And I knew that as soon as I got out of law school, I I was just hungry for the opportunity to to do something in the space and to to find a way and to affect change. Uh, And so... Like many uh, misguided youth, my initial thought was maybe I could change the government from the inside. Uh, and so I, I worked for Department of Justice for a year, uh, actually 363 days, because that's about as long as I could take it and uh, figure out that that wasn't really a path for change. Uh, and then I went and worked with an organization, Mountain States Legal Foundation, uh, where I did some Endangered Species Act work, some property rights work, uh, but I also helped them launch and I founded the Center to Keep and Bear Arms there. And so I did firearms litigation there for a while. And then eventually, you know, the opportunity came to uh, to work with FPC, to work with FPC Action Foundation, and to really have a, a massive national impact on this space. Uh, you know, we have a an active docket of about 53 cases across the country, everywhere from you know, California, New York, Texas, Washington, Oregon, you know, just just touching on as many states as, as you could possibly imagine. And we're also, you know, at FBC Action Foundation, we also have our research division where we're doing original research, looking at, you know, the history that underlies the right. We're publishing academic articles on that space. Our director of constitutional studies, Joseph Greenlee, uh, we're filing amicus briefs in cases across the country, the ones that, you know, we were not necessarily litigate, litigating in. We're trying to help those too. And 
to have that opportunity to have that big national impact with FPC was just uh, was too good to pass up. And, and I've certainly loved my time here. Yeah, it, it's definitely it's definitely a necessary organization. Um, and kind of to go back to what you were just talking about at the beginning there about, you know, the Second Amendment kind of being um, one that people yeah, kind of put to the side, you know, let's e- even, you know, so-called Republicans or conservatives, you know, they'll, they'll talk about free speech and, you know, Donald Trump famously, when he was president, he wasn't the best president for the second amendment. He, he did some, uh, some not so good things. And, you know, a lot of people just kind of, Oh, don't, don't worry about that. Don't he's, he's better than the other guy. He's better, better than, uh, than the, uh, the alternative. But I, I love how um, the FPC is, you know, taking the fight to, use, like you said, going at the state level, the federal level, and at the forefront of defending the Second Amendment. So tremendous work that, that you all are doing. And I do want to dig into some of these cases. And I thought we could start out with the, uh, the ghost gun case. I know that I mentioned at the top that uh, my colleague here, um, Brian McWilliams, talked about it in an episode a couple weeks ago, um, but r- rather than starting with, you know, the, the current status of it, maybe if we could kind of peel back and you could um, really talk about the, the, the origins and, um, you know, your involvement and, uh, yeah, r- really just, just take it from the top, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, first, uh, we, uh, and I don't use the term ghost gun, um, and there's a reason for that, right? That's sure. It's an intentionally derisive term that's been created by the gun control movement to try and make these things sound scary. Um, You know, the industry, the firearms industry generally calls them like an 80% lower, an 80% receiver. Mm -hmm. But even that is is kind of a misnomer for for two reasons. First, 80% 80 is meaningless. It's not like the the item is 80% on its way to manufacture. That's just a, a convenient moniker. But also calling it an 80% of a frame or 80% of a receiver is also inaccurate because they're not frames and they're not receivers, right? These are items that individuals can eventually manufacture into a a frame or a receiver. But you can also manufacture a block of aluminum into a frame or receiver or a shovel. Like there's a billion things that could be that. It'd be like calling a shovel like a 65% frame. Um, (laughs) And so the, the moniker doesn't really make sense. So, you know, in the case, if you ever read any of the filings, uh, which I'm sure everybody just dives right into reading all of the lengthy <laughs> briefs that are filed in these cases, you'll see that we call them like non-firearm objects because that's really all they are. They're, until they become a frame or receiver, they're nothing. And, and for, the, for the ATF's purposes, they should be and should remain nothing. Right. But of course, the Biden administration uh, last year decided to publish a rule that sought to expand the authority of the ATF to allow the ATF to regulate these items, even though they don't meet the congressionally established federal definition definition of a firearm. Um, and so we filed a lawsuit. We filed a lawsuit on behalf of two individuals, uh, Jennifer Vanderstock, Michael Andrin, and then a, you know, a producer of these items, tactical machining based out of Florida. Uh, and of course, FPC and FPC's members. And the key to the lawsuit really, I mean, there's a lot of different elements. When you're talking about these cases against rulemakings, we're in a little bit of a different area. It's called the Administrative Procedure Act. 
And so instead of necessarily, you know, making a constitutional argument, a lot of times what you're arguing is that the agency did something that it's not allowed to do, that Congress has said that they're not allowed to do, or they didn't follow the procedure that they're legally required to do it. So there's a lot of uh, provisions under the APA. There's some violations. But what, what really was the brunt of this case, what the most important is, is that the, they attempted to expand federal law via an agency rulemaking. And they're just they're not allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. Congress makes law. Congress decides, you know, what the bounds of federal law will be. And the executive branch agencies just don't have any power to expand federal law. And yet this rule, that's exactly what it did. These items, ATF had long treated them, treated them as if they were not firearms because they are, they do not meet the definition, the federal definition of firearm. And yet all of a sudden in a policy shift, the Biden administration says, well, we want to regulate these things. And now magically ATF is going to say, oh, well, I know we've said that they aren't firearms for decades, but we actually think that they are firearms. And that, that flip was just so obvious and it was so political and it so breaks with the statutory, um, the statutory language that when about, when about did that flip occur last year? Okay. Right. So this was a big campaign thing at the Biden administration, right? They came down and said as part of their campaign promises, right? Like we're going to crack down on these so-called ghost guns and people's ability to, you know, make guns in their basement has been another one of the taglines. Um, so, we, you know, it was obvious that it was going to be coming. And then eventually, you know, the agency put out a a proposed rule that, you know, laid out some details and then a final rule that inevitably basically did what was expected and, and completely converted the legal status of these items. So we filed a suit in the district court. Uh, if you've been following the case for some time, you'll know that, you know, we got an injunction at the district court level there was a number of different, after we filed our case, um, there was a number of different manufacturers and groups that ended up coming in and joining us in the case, right? So uh, Blackhawk Manufacturing, 80% Arms came and joined in. Um, uh, Defense Distributed came and joined in uh, as another manufacturer. The other manufacturers or the other producers, sorry, were uh, Polymer 80 and JSD Supply. So there's, there's there were a, a group of people that all kind of jumped in and joined in the case. Um, And so we got an injunction that injunction covered the individual plaintiffs and then eventually also covered tactical machining and tactical machining's customers, which basically said, look, you are allowed to continue operating as you did before the rule was, was put into place. And so it kind of returned us to the pre-rule status quo. Uh, So of course we, we went up on that issue. We defended that issue um, or sorry, we won that issue at the district court. Uh, and then just recently, the district court decided the the full merits of the case uh, and said that, yes, in fact, this rule was in excess of the agency's authority. And mm-hmm. then it vacated the final rule, which means that it took the whole rule and basically threw it in the trash and said, nope, we're not going to we're not going to do this at all. Uh, so, of course, that wasn't uh, that wasn't well enough for the federal government. So they appealed. And this is what everybody's been talking about, right? So they appealed mm-hmm. up to the, uh, there's an appeal active at the Fifth Circuit right now, because this case is based in Texas. And so the Fifth Circuit covers, um, you know, Texas and some other states. And they have asked, or they did ask, and a, a stay of the district court's order. And basically what that means is 
they asked the court to say, hey, pause throwing the rule in the trash. Let us continue to enforce our rule while we appeal our loss at the district court. Uh, And of course, that's the issue that went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court uh, said, yes, we will stay the vacater. We will not throw the rule in the trash yet. You can continue to enforce it while you fight your appeal. Uh, and so it, that was the big, you know, newsworthy item that, uh, and what, that triggered a lot. Of what was the Supreme Court's justification for doing that? Well, so that's what you get in, interesting in cases like these. The Supreme Court didn't publish an opinion um, hmm. surrounding their order. So all we have is the basically one paragraph order from the Supreme Court, which says that they stayed the vacatur, uh, they stayed the district's court's order insofar as it vacates the final rule, which basically means the opinion and the order still stand from the district court. All of the court's reasoning still stands, Mm -hmm. but the rule is still able to be enforced during the appeal. Uh, And the Supreme Court didn't, didn't give a reasoning for that. Didn't give a justification. That's not uncommon in something in a, in a case like this, uh, even though it is certainly frustrating, but uh, all we know is that four justices would have denied um, that relief. Uh, Thomas, Gorsuch, uh, Alito, and Kavanaugh would have would have denied the government's request, which means we also know the justices that obviously granted the government's mm-hmm. request. Uh, which I'll I'll uh, leave for everybody listening to puzzle out those those five themselves. But um, we don't have a, a reason that the court made the decision. We just know what the decision was. And now we're briefing at the Fifth Circuit to fight this issue and to defend our win at the Fifth Circuit. So so ultimately, um, well, I guess depending what happens with the Fifth Circuit, this could go back to the Supreme Court, right? Yeah. And I mean, it, it, when you have something like this where you've got this interplay, it seems pretty likely that the Supreme Court might eventually weigh in. It obviously depends mm-hmm. on what the uh, the Fifth Circuit says. But when the court's already jumped in and instituted a stay, then it's it's pretty likely that the court will, you know, jump in again, um, again, depending on what the Fifth Circuit says. We, you know, we we're very confident in our win at the district court. We're very confident in the court's reasoning. And we're, you know, we're really confident that the fifth circuit is going to uphold the district court here because it is just such a blatant expansion of, of ATF power. I mean, it's just so obvious. They even took the, they've taken contrary positions in prior cases. I mean, this isn't, it's, it's just so obvious that they decided on, on a political basis to push this, this Mm -hmm. agenda. So, uh, you know, we're pretty confident that the fifth circuit will, will uphold uh, our win from the district court. And then we'll see if, uh, if the Supreme court decides to take on the issue and, and weigh in. Is there a timetable for when the fifth circuit for when that appeal will, will take place? Yeah. So it's, it's briefing is ongoing right now. Uh, and it's on an expedited basis, uh, which for federal courts, you know, expedited for courts means a little bit different than for a lot of people, but this truly is expedited. So, so briefing is going to be happening over the next month. Uh, and oral argument is slated for early September. So this case will be argued before the fifth circuit in early September, which anybody who follows the courts knows that that's like light speed. Um, and then once the case is argued, the fifth circuit can issue an opinion whenever, um, you know, that's a little bit of a, a different timeline. 
we had another case that was previously the one we're going to talk about next, probably mm-hmm. uh, had an, another case that was on an expedited basis before the fifth circuit. And it took about a month to get a decision, which was astounding at how fast that is for, for perspective. Some of these circuit courts, not necessarily the fifth, it's pretty quick, but some of the other circuits, it'll take a year to get an opinion in some of these cases. So to get an, an opinion in a month is, is pretty impressive. So we don't necessarily know how long it'll take the Fifth Circuit to to review the briefs, to review argument, and to issue an opinion. But we do know that they're paying attention to how important this issue is, and that mm-hmm. they understand that it's um, it's a fast track kind of thing. Yeah, well, that's 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 good to hear that uh, that soon sooner rather than later we, we should uh, should have an answer here on this case. So you did allude to the uh, the next case we're going to talk about here, which is the uh, ATF pistol brace case, Mock versus Garland, and this also has to do with an ATF rule, right? That that they put in place. Yeah. So this one, another point on the Biden administration, another kind of political goal at the end of the day, and uh, basically for a long time, for for about a decade. There's been a product on the market called a pistol brace or a stabilizing brace. And what that is, is it's something that attaches to the back of traditionally like a heavy pistol, like an AR style pistol or an AK style pistol. And it's designed to attach to the back of the the pistol and then to brace against the the operators, the shooters forearm. Mm -hmm. And the design for that is that initially it was designed for a wounded veteran who wasn't able to shoot these heavy pistols with one hand without that stabilization. And so that's how it's designed. That's its function. And for a decade, the ATF has basically said, yep, these, these items, these stabilizing braces do not convert the status of a pistol. They're designed and intended to aid in one handed firing. Now, the administration changed uh, and their political goals changed. And then magically the ATF's interpretation changed with new political appointees in place. And so the ATF released a rule that basically overnight reclassified every pistol that has a pistol brace attached uh, to classify it as a, a short barreled rifle saying that the brace actually converts that firearm into a rifle under federal law. And as a result, if it has a barrel of less than 16 inches, which the vast majority of these these pistols do, that it's actually a short-barreled rifle, which is then regulated by the National Firearms Act, which means that you have to get a tax stamp, you have to pass an enhanced background check, and you're forever listed on a registry with your firearm. Uh, And by the way, it generally takes, you know, two-thirds of a year to get that tax stamp and have that ability to lawfully possess that arm. So it, it basically transformed millions of Americans into felons overnight um, and completely shifted the status of federal firearms law, all because the ATF decided that this, this pistol brace was actually, in their view, a stock and turned all of these pistols into rifles under federal interpretation. Which doesn't, I mean, and I don't know if this is part of the, the how you're arguing against it, but it's not, I mean, there's a definition for what a rifle is, right? It has to do with, you know, the, the spiraling grooved in the barrel, which you can't just say something's a rifle, right? So interestingly too, on a rifle, so you can have a rifled barrel on a pistol. Uh, so a rifled barrel so, does yeah. not make, 
does not make a rifle. But what does is federal law says that it's designed and intended to be fired from the shoulder. So a rifle mm-hmm. is designed and intended to be fired from the shoulder using two hands. A pistol is designed and intended to be fired one-handed, essentially. Now, most people today fire pistols using two hands. I mean, just about anybody who's going to train you how to, you know, operate a handgun is going to touch, teach you how to, sh- to fire it with two hands. Yeah, it's not like the movies yeah. where you're yeah, no, no, r- no. running, right, running, maybe. firing. <laughs> yeah. Any, any of your listeners who are, uh, who are gun guys knows that it takes a long time to train to, to oh, yeah. shoot one handed, especially with, uh, with some of these handguns that we have out nowadays. I have one that's aggressively heavy and I couldn't hit the broadside of a barn <laughs> one handed uh, exaggerating, but mm. you know, um, so what's important is that design and intent and at like with handguns, right? It's not that some users might shoot it a different way. It's the design and intent. And for, we know that stabilizing braces by their terms, by their patents, by all of their classification are designed and intended to help aid one handed firing of pistols. And so ATF can't just come in and go, well, we actually, because, you know, these may be fired from the shoulder or because people can fire them from the shoulder or may want to, mm-hmm. we get to reclassify everything like that's, they don't get to reinterpret federal law to be excessively broader than the text of federal law. And so basically they took that designed and intended language and said, well, we're going to actually create a factor test that we're going to look to. We're not going to really define anything and everything's going to be up to the director of the ATF's discretion. And we'll tell you when things are designed and intended. And so it's this like crazy six part factor, open-ended factor test that by the way, includes the use of the product in public and includes third party statements, which means a manufacturer can design and intend a stabilizing brace to be fired from one to aid one-handed firing. Everything else in the record could show that it is designed and intended for one-handed firing. But if somebody that's completely unaffiliated makes a YouTube video using that product and show and fires it from the shoulder, the ATF can go back and say, Oh, because there's third party usage of this from the shoulder, that means that it's actually designed and intended to be fired from the shoulder. Like that's how crazy the final rule is. That's how so aggressively broad it is. And it, it essentially, you know, the ATF says that there's about 3 million of these, of these firearms in circulation. It's pretty unlikely. Uh, there was a congressional review estimate that said that it was, it was probably closer to four to 10 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even that's probably being, uh, being safe. So Let's just assume, you know, on the top end of that, that there's there's 10 million of these in in circulation. That's 10 million people that with the stroke of a pen, the ATF made into felons overnight. And then out of the kindness of the ATF's heart, they gave people 120 days to register their arm. But they said that those arms are and have always been SBRs, which means they were saying that those people were felons at the time that the rule was, was put into effect. And the idea that we have a federal agency, an executive branch agency, that with the stroke of a pen can alter criminal law in this country is absolutely astounding. And if that doesn't get people up in arms, if that doesn't piss people off, then there, there's just no hope for them because that's so in violation of everything 
that our country is supposed to stand for, that our system of government is supposed mm-hmm. to protect against, that it is just the most basic violation of people's natural right to self-defense. Hey, it's, it's basic separation of powers, like you were talking about earlier with, with the first case. The, the ATF being the executive branch is not to be um, making up or determining what the laws are. That's That comes from Congress. That comes from yeah. uh, the Senate and, and legislation. And for them to be able to just, to just create their own laws is totally absurd. And I mean, you would think even liberals on the left would be in favor of this because I mean, they don't want a Republican president coming in doing doing similar things that would be against things that that they care about. But of course, they don't look at it that way. But uh, so, w- where does this case stand now? I mean, it it seems like this would be I don't know, maybe not easier to uh, get thrown out than the uh, than the previous lowers case. Yeah. So in this case, we uh, you know we tried to get an injunction at the district court, and we were unsuccessful. Uh, but then we went to the Fifth Circuit and we asked for them, asked them for something called uh, an injunction pending appeal. Mm-hmm. And basically, what that means is court, these people are going to be felons in the next period of time. And that was right around when that 120 day uh, so-called grace period uh, was was about to expire or was expiring. And so we basically asked the Fifth Circuit just, hey, can you just put a pause on this rule while we we argue our appeal, you know, and let us protect people and 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 ensure that people are protected while you guys have the opportunity to review our appeal. Fifth Circuit said yes uh, and granted us that that uh, injunction pending appeal and then also clarified that that injunction applied to you know, the individual plaintiffs in the case, but also applied to Maxim Defense and Maxim Defense's customers and, then as, and FPC's members, uh, which was hugely important. And after that happened, you know, there were other there are other cases on this issue across the country. There were other organizations that had cases across the country. After we got that that clarification from the Fifth Circuit in Mock, uh, you know, all of these other judges across the country started citing to Mock and started granting injunctions in those cases as well. So mm-hmm. it was hugely impactful, and it was you know incredibly important to to get that win and get that step at the Fifth Circuit. On top of that, after we briefed and argued the case. The Fifth Circuit came out. This was the case where, you know, we argued it and about a month later, we got an opinion. The Fifth Circuit came out and said that we are, in fact, likely to win the case. That's an element of a preliminary injunction. You have to prove that you're likely to win. The Fifth Circuit said, yep, you're likely to win. And then also said, we're going to send the rest of the factors, the rest of the questions surrounding a preliminary injunction back down to the district court for the district court to decide. Uh, But we're going to keep our injunction in place for 60 days and district court. You have to decide within 60 days. So that's the period we're in right now. Hmm. So we've got that injunction still in place from the fifth circuit. It goes through September. We're currently briefing at the Northern district of Texas in the district court. We're briefing the other preliminary injunction factors and the appropriate scope of the injunction. And that briefing is ongoing over the next few weeks. And we'll have a decision from the district court, no later than the end of September on that case. If if you win, do you think that there will be an appeal similar to the other case? Uh, I would I would say that if you know, assuming assuming we win, uh, it's a pretty much a near certainty that that the feds are going to appeal this. I mean, mm-hmm. they like I said, the Biden administration made this a you know a political priority. It's a campaign promise. I 
you know, of course they're going to use our win in their future campaigning, I'm sure. Uh, and they're going to claim that, you know, that they can't get these things through because there's judges standing in their way. But what's really happening is they're just blatantly violating federal law and they're blatantly violating people's constitutionally protected rights. And then they're complaining when courts are striking it down. I mean, yeah, you passed it or you, you published an unconstitutional rule. What do you think is going to happen? The court is going to rule it's unconstitutional. So, you know, they're going to try and paint it as a, uh, as a campaigning moment, no matter what. And I'm sure if, if we win at the district court that they'll push an appeal. Um, but, you know, we're confident in our arguments. We're confident in our case. We, we know, uh, we know that we've got the underlying support for this one. And it's just pretty, pretty blatantly clear what they're doing is, is unlawful and unconstitutional. Yeah. hundred percent. But that, that seems to be the, the MO of the, uh, the current, uh, regime, the current administration. Yeah, and they'll just tie things up in courts too, right? Like that's the problem. And, and the people who lose and the people who suffer are, you know, the public because, the administration doesn't care. I mean, they're happy that they get to continue to enforce their frame or receiver rule. But the people that suffer are everyday people who are trying to follow along with what's going on, are trying to figure out where these things stand, where these cases stand, and are scared. And, and that's completely understandable, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's terrifying to think that you might be in violation of a federal gun law because you don't necessarily know where an injunction falls, or you don't necessarily know where a case falls. And to me, that's the most disgusting part of this is that the government is is using its heavy hand to regulate and its heavy hand to, to violate people's rights. But then on top of it, they know that they can tie it up in court and they know that they can, you know, scare people because people might not understand where something falls. And, mm-hmm. and that's just the worst part of it, right? We're we're doing everything we can in, in courts and we're doing everything we can in these cases to make sure that we can pr- protect as many people as possible and to ensure that we can, you know, we can put pauses on these rules for everyone. And that's what we've been trying in all of these cases since day one. And sometimes the court, you know, as, as we've just talked about, sometimes the court will wade in and, and give us the injunction. Uh, and other times the court doesn't, or it'll only grant it to, uh, you know, a limited group of people. But, What's really important is that people are, are following along with these things and people are understanding what's happening and that, you know, we translate for people uh, what's going on. And so that's why I really appreciate you having me on, uh, letting me talk about this, asking some questions and, and getting this out to to your listeners. You know, I think it's really it's really encouraging that people are now, you know, really dialed into some of these court cases and really following the legal process. And I know that's kind of new um, for a lot of people. And it's unfortunate that they have to because their rights are tied up in, in federal court litigation. But all we can hope for is to uh, continue winning and to com- continue beating back the ATF. Yeah. And, and thank you so much, Cody, for, for coming on. And yeah, like you were saying, people are following along with these cases because it seems like they are so much more impactful. You know, it, it really you know, some of our rights are, are on the line here. And it's easier than ever to follow along with the case because you can, you know, click on the uh, Firearms Policy Coalition's website. You can you can search for the specific case and you can see right where it is and what's happened in the past and and read through it. So before I let you go, Cody, if you could just give uh, give your plugs, personal, um, also for uh, for FPC, and let people know where they can find everything you're doing. For sure. So you could, like you were saying, you can go and see where all of our cases are online. 
Uh, you can go to firearmspolicy.org um, and you'll be able to see our legal action and everything that's going on on that website. If you want to join and become a member, you can go to joinfpc.org uh, and become a member of Firearms Policy Coalition, which will help support these fights, will help you know support this litigation that can take you know years and years at a time and, and can get really expensive. Uh, and then on social medias, you can follow us at gun policy on just about everything um, for Firearms Policy Coalition. Uh, for FPC Action Foundation, you can visit us at the website as well, or FPC Action uh, is our social media handle for just about everything. For me, I'm the Wizard of Laws with a Z on like Twitter and Instagram. I avoid just about everything else these days. Great, but, great name. Uh, great, great hand. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. So, but thank you again for having me on. Uh, you know, I hope that people will continue to follow along with these cases and uh, we'll keep, you know, informed of where their rights stand. Cody Wisniewski, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. All right, guys, that is a wrap for today's Finding Freedom. Be sure to subscribe to the Lions of Liberty Network and or subscribe to the Finding Freedom solo feed to make sure to get every single podcast delivered to your phone. We'll be back next week with another great episode of Finding Freedom. In the meantime, always remember to keep your head up in the fires of liberty burning. That's complicated. In that time, governments, institutions, and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life. These are real stories of real people overcoming the odds, persevering in justice, and unlocking their potential. Welcome to Finding Freedom. Here's your host, John Oderman. <laughs>